Father, as we prepare to open your word and read your word and teach and learn from your word, pray that your help, your spirit, the author of the word, would be with us, doing as you promised he would do, helping us to understand it, convicting us, convincing us, shaping us, molding us. We pray for your help now. And we trust that you will give what is good to your children because we are in Christ. So we pray in his name. Amen. If you ask the average American pastor, Pastor, what part of your spiritual life are you most disappointed with? I believe the almost across the board answer would be I'm most disappointed with my prayer life. In fact, a recent survey done by Ellison Research and published by Baptist Press said that only 9% of pastors who were surveyed claimed to be satisfied with their prayer life. Now that can be a good thing. It at the very least shows that pastors are humble about their neglect and willing to admit it. And it also shows that they recognize that they are powerless and that they need to pray, that they need God's help. So for pastors to say, I'm dissatisfied with my prayer life can be a good thing, but it also can be a bad thing. Because it's a recognition that many pastors aren't praying as they should. And many pastors aren't praying as they could. You know, if anyone has time to pray, it ought to be the pastor. Acts 6.4, we learn the pastor's job description when the apostles said to the congregation, we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. That's the twofold job description of the pastor. Put other things aside. They have deacons to take care of other things so that they have time to pray and to study. So if anyone has time to pray, it's the pastor. If anyone has reason to pray, it's the pastor. Hebrews 13:17 describes the pastor as someone who has watch over your souls and someone who will give an account for your souls. When I stand before God, He is going to ask me, how did you care for the souls of the people at Pleasant Ridge Baptist Church? For their souls as a congregation and for them individually. That's a reason to pray. That's a lot of accountability on the pastor's shoulders. So if anyone has time and reason to pray, it ought to be the pastor. But the statistics reflect that pastors, many pastors anyway in this country, need to catch what Paul had. Paul prayed and prayed and prayed for this Colossians church. You remember chapter 1 verse 3 when he said, we are praying always for you. And then again in chapter 1 verse 9, he says, we have not ceased to pray for you. And then here in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, he again describes this deep, wrestling prayer for the Colossians when he says, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf 
and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. For even though I am absent in body, nevertheless, I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Paul is praying and praying and praying for the Colossians. And so tonight I want to speak to you about how a pastor prays from the first five verses of Colossians chapter 2. And the strategy as we move forward will be simply to ask three questions of this text. Three questions. Number one, why do I think Paul is describing his prayer life in Colossians 2, 1 through 5? Why do I think Paul is talking about prayer here when he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. I hope you see that that's a good question because nowhere in these verses does Paul specifically mention prayer. He doesn't use the word prayer. He doesn't tell us specifically that he's talking about prayer. So the question is then, why do I believe that's what he's talking about? Why do I believe he's describing his prayer life here if he doesn't say that specifically? I'll give you two reasons. One is that Paul is in the middle of here of a long train of thought that began in chapter 1, verse 3, speaking about prayer. We remember when we began the book that we said sometimes under the inspiration of God and because he's so excited to get down all his thoughts on paper that Paul tends to ramble. He writes very long sentences that twist this way and that. They're sometimes difficult to get sometimes difficult to follow his train of thought because he just goes in a kind of stream of consciousness kind of writing. And so as we kind of trace the the line through this passage, I think we'll see that he began with prayer and that's what he's getting back to in chapter 2. So just begin in chapter 1, verse 3 with me and try to follow along. In chapter 1, verse 3, it's clear. He says, we're praying always for you. But then in verses 4 through 8, he takes a sidetrack and explains, how do we even know you, Colossians? You'll remember that Paul had never met the Colossians. He didn't plant the church at Colossae. And so when he writes to them in verse 1-3 through three, or one three, and says, hey, we're always praying for you. Then he says, well, I'd better pause here and describe why we're always praying for them. How it is that we know them? And so he goes on and talks about Epaphras and how Epaphras started the church and how he knows Epaphras and so on. And then in verse 9, he gets back to his original thought. Oh yes, by the way, we have not ceased to pray for you. And then thinking again about prayer, he says, well, let me tell you in verses 10 through 12 what we pray for you. We pray that you'll walk in a manner worthy of the Lord and please Him in all respects. We pray that you'll bear good fruit and increase in the knowledge of God and so on. And he concludes that by talking about God qualifying us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And that makes him take a little bit of another sidetrack to talk about Jesus and the gospel in verses 13 through 23. And thinking about the gospel makes him think, oh, what a privilege it is that I've been made a minister of the gospel. So he takes another sidetrack in verses 24 through 29 about ministry. And then he gets to the end of that. And here in chapter 2, verse 1, it's as though he was saying, Yes, the gospel and ministry to local churches 
Which brings me back to my original point, which is prayer. I'm praying for you, local church in Colossae. So I think that his long train of thought that began with prayer and weaved in and out through some other topics is now returning to prayer. And the second reason I think that he's actually describing his prayer life here is because though he's not with the Colossians, verse 5, he says, I'm absent in body. Though he's not with the Colossians, he says in verse 1, he's struggling on their behalf. If he's not with them, his struggle can't be in preaching. It can't be in counseling. It can't be in organizing the church. So his struggle on their behalf has to be either writing this letter from a distance or praying from a distance. Whatever the struggle is, it must be something that can be done from a distance. And I think it's probably he's struggling both as he writes this letter, wanting to encourage them, but he's also struggling in prayer. And I think that's mainly what he has in mind. And again, because of his train of thought, which began describing his prayer for them back in chapter 1. So I conclude that Colossians 2, 1 through 5 is describing Paul's prayer life. Thus the title tonight, How a Pastor Prays. Now that title leads me to a second question. And the second question is this. What should non-pastors take from a sermon on the pastor's prayer life? What should people like you who are not pastors take from a sermon about how a pastor prays? In other words, what's the point of this sermon? What does this have to do with your life? And again, I have two answers for that as well. First, these verses are applicable to you in that they are, in large part, my job description. Remember, Acts 6.4 indicated that the pastor's two main tasks are prayer and the ministry of the Word. Interestingly enough, listed in that order with prayer first. So this passage, as it describes the pastor's prayer life, is giving you one half of my job description. Part of my job description is preaching and teaching and counseling and writing the ministry of the Word. And the other half is prayer. So let's learn what I should be doing. And here we have one of the great passages describing how a pastor should pray and for what a pastor should pray. And so as we uncover Paul's example tonight, you should look at these verses as the standard to which you should hold me accountable and the standard to which you should pray that I will attain. So this matters for you, number one, because it's a description of what you should hold me accountable for and hope that I will do for you, pray for you. And second, non-pastors can take from this sermon uh, this reminder. These verses... Paul's prayer for these people are a blueprint for Christian living. These verses answer the question, what does Paul, under God, want a church to look like? And what does Paul, under God, want a Christian to look like? In other words, whatever Paul prays for these people is what God wants them to be. So as you read what Paul prays, you can understand what God wants them and by extension what God wants us to become. Interestingly enough, public prayers, whether they are prayed out loud or written down and given to someone, always serve a dual function. They are first and foremost requests of God. God, please do this. God, please answer that. But public prayers are also meant for the instruction of those who hear, or in this case, those who read. And so so Paul writes out 
the kinds of things he prays for the Colossians so that they will hear those things and understand what God wants them to become. So, tonight, let Paul's prayer requests instruct you as to what God wants you to become. Now, let's get down to business with our third and our most important question. And that is, how does Paul pray? We've said that he's praying. We've talked about what we can get out of what he's praying. Now let's talk about what he's actually praying for. And as we walk through the five verses, we'll have five answers to that question, or a five-part answer to the question, how does Paul pray? Number one, this is a prayer of wrestling. A prayer of wrestling. Verse one, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea, and for all those who have not personally seen my face. In verse 29, we saw Paul wrestling with God in study. I labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. He was talking about his study and his preaching. And now in the very next verse, chapter 2, verse 1, we find Paul wrestling with God in prayer. So God wrestles with Paul wrestles with God in study and preaching. He wrestles with God in prayer on behalf of the people. And whenever I think about wrestling with God, and probably when you think about wrestling with God, your mind immediately goes to Genesis 32, where Jacob wrestled with God through the night. Do you remember what Jacob said to God? I will not let you go unless you bless me. And that's the picture that I have of Paul here from verse 1. Struggling in prayer, saying to God, I won't let you go unless you bless the Colossians. I won't stop praying for the Colossians until I see you bless them. Build them up. Make them strong in the faith. It's a picture of the pastor's passion for his people. The pastor's flock becomes like his second set of children. It may be difficult to understand, especially since I'm younger than most of you, but the truth is there. You become like Toby and I, like our second set of children. And so when one of you goes astray, we weep over that. When one or more of the people in the flock rebels, the pastor hurts like a father whose children have rebelled. And when one of the flock rejoices, the pastor rejoices. When one of the flock is running well, the pastor is glad and praises the Lord. There have been many times where we've left on a Sunday or a Wednesday and gone home just thrilled about what God is doing. And there have been other times where we've gone home in those same situations and laid on the floor in our home and just wept. Because there's a passion that God gives the pastor for the people. And that passion pours over into a wrestling, struggling prayer, earnestly crying out to the Lord, God, bless the people. I will not let you go until you bless my people. That's the kind of prayer that I ought to be praying for you. This prayer also, this wrestling, is is a picture of Paul's human weakness. Here is Paul, the great apostle, the great preacher, 
the great organizer of churches, stuck in a prison cell where he can do nothing but pray. And yet believing that that prayer is so important that he wrestles and struggles in it. Working when he cannot work. It's a lesson for us all, isn't it? All of us must work. We must plant. We must sweat. We must water the Lord's field. But ultimately, God has to cause the growth. And therefore, we pray like crazy. Lord, make what we are doing worthwhile. Make it last. Make it eternal. Certainly, this is the lesson for the pastor. My job is through teaching and through leading to carefully lay the wood for a sacrifice for God. To build up the altar, so to speak. But God has to send the fire. I cannot send fire from heaven. Only God can. And so I must plead with Him to do so. I must wrestle with Him to do so. So how does Paul pray? Number one, a prayer of wrestling. Secondly, how does Paul and how should the pastor pray? A prayer for encouraging unity. Verse 2. First half of the verse. What do I pray? That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. The key phrase there is knit together. What do I pray for? That the church would be knit together. That they would be unified. There are few things that are more encouraging in the church than unity. Some of you have experienced this. Even if there's crisis in the church or crisis in your home, you can survive if the family is together and on the same page, can't you? You can get through anything if the family, the church family or the family in your home is together. But if there's disunity, it matters very little how much quote-unquote success a church may have. Everything is wrong if the people aren't together. So Paul prays that they would be knit together, that they would be unified. And the question is, where does the unity come from? Well, first it comes from genuine love, that they would be knit together in love, he prays. When I think about a church being unified and a church that loved, I can't help but point you back again to Acts chapter 2, verses 44 and 40, through 47. These verses, this story that I go to again, and again and again, all those who had believed, this was in Jerusalem, all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. Don't you want to have favor with all the people? Well, it happened in this church as they were of one mind, the writer describes. They had one mind. They were unified. Why were they unified? Because they held all things in common. Because they were taking their meals together. In short, because they loved each other. They wanted nothing more than to be together. To serve together. To love together. So unity comes from genuine Love between God's people. Unity also comes, Paul says in verse 2, from sound 
doctrine. He prayed that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from full assurance of understanding. Now, full assurance of understanding means you understand things fully. You know what you believe. You understand the Bible correctly. That's what he's praying. I want them to understand the Bible correctly. I want them to have sound doctrine, well-defined, strict attention to the truth. And he says, when that happens, your hearts will be knit together. When you love each other, your hearts will be knit together. When your doctrine is sound, you'll be knit together. So don't buy into the lie that is so often told in our day that doctrine, well-defined, strict attention to truth, divides people. Don't buy that lie. Don't buy the lie that we just all need to gather around some nice spiritual pep talks but not really define anything too well or someone might be insulted and get out of Dodge. Don't buy that. That's insane. You find me a group of people who are dedicated to rigorous study of the truth. And I will show you the most unified group of people you've ever met. Sound doctrine, fully understanding the truth, brings people together. Why is that? Because when we are thrilled with and agreed upon the main things, there's not a whole lot of reason to disagree over things like music style or dress code or hurt feelings that have happened along the line or financial snafus. All those things change and vary. But the great truths of the Scripture never change. The great truths of the Scripture unite people even if they have differences of opinion on very secondary and minor issues. I'll give you a a great example was the conference I just got back from. It was called Together for the Gospel. It was about unity. And so on one end of the stage was a Baptist, and on the other end of the stage was a Presbyterian. On one end of the stage there was a man in a three-piece suit, and on the other end of the stage there was a man dressed about as casual as I am tonight. On one end of the stage there was a man whose church is very high church, very much classical in its music style and its worship style. And on the other end was a man whose church has hands raised and guitars every week. And maybe most interestingly, on one side of the stage, there was a man who believes in all the spiritual gifts, the miraculous gifts and the more unmiraculous gifts and practices them and encourages his church to practice them and is written about how we should practice them and on the same stage with him invited by him was a man who has written a book saying that those gifts are no longer in existence with the close of the new testament canon you see they they these men were very different in very many areas very many secondary areas some of them things that we need to think through like the spiritual gifts But in the main things, the Gospel, the truth of the Scriptures, those things that all Christians do and must agree on, they were unified. Strongly unified. So that if someone came in with ideas that were even slightly askew from what they believe are the main truths of the Scriptures, that person would not have been together with them for the Gospel. Truth unifies It does not divide. So Paul wrestles in prayer and he wrestles praying that 
they would have unity that encourages them. Unity in love and unity in the truth so that they would be encouraged. Third, it's a prayer for Christ-centeredness. Talk about sound doctrine and at the center of sound doctrine is Christ Himself. Verse 2, the second half of the verse, I pray for full assurance of understanding resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ Himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul wants unity around the truth and the center of the truth, the center of the Bible, the center of sound doctrine is Jesus Christ Himself. So we don't unify around pet commandments that we think are really important. We don't unify around what we believe about the end times. We don't unify around family values. We don't unify, as important as they are, we don't unify around something like the temperance movement. We unify around the person and the work of Jesus Christ as He is revealed to us in the Holy Scriptures. In Him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ is the center. That's what Paul prays for. Lord, let Christ be the center. Let Him be the treasure of these people. That causes me to ask you a very important question. As Paul prays for people like us and says, God, let Christ be their treasure. You must ask yourself, is Christ really my treasure? Don't just say yes, of course He is. Really, ask yourself, is He my treasure? Is He treasured above every other thing? Can you sing honestly, I want you more than gold or silver, only you can satisfy Here's another way to ask it. Is Christ for you a means to get what you want? Or is He what you want? Is He a means or is He an end? If He is a means, then you are simply using Him to get to heaven, probably. But your end is actually heaven. Your end is actually to avoid hellfire, or to live forever, or to see Mama again, or to finally get that mansion. There are so many Christians or people who think that they're Christians who say that they're following Christ and their whole motivation for, quote, following Christ is because they don't want to go to hell or because they want to see their grandmama or because they don't want the circle to be broken by and by. And all those things are wonderful things, but they are not the treasure that we are seeking. Christ is not the means to get a better treasure. Christ is the treasure. When we are in heaven, we will want to see Christ. We won't want to see Grandmama first. We won't want to see Moses and ask Him questions first. We will want Christ. And we will want Christ more. And we will want Him more and more and more. He is the treasure. If He is a means, you're just using Him. If Christ is a means, you view the Gospel something like this. I'm glad I'm saved. Now I can get on with my life and I don't have that to worry about. Or now I can move on to deeper discoveries in the Bible. Listen to me. 
There are no deeper discoveries in the Bible than Christ. In Him are all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, Paul says. There are no deeper minds to dig in than the minds of the glories of Christ. You could spend four lifetimes just digging in the Gospels. You could spend another one in Acts. You could spend 21 more in the epistles and another one in Revelation. And then you could spend 30 more lifetimes, 39 more lifetimes digging through the Old Testament, which Jesus said, all of the law and the prophets speak about me. The Bible's treasure is Christ. Not all the gifts, gifts that come along with Him. If Christ is really our end, if He is not just our means but our end, then He's not simply the cart that gets us into the diamond mine. He is the mine itself. Another way to think of it is to ask this question. If you go to a concert or a political event and you say to yourself, I would love to be backstage. Why do you want to get backstage? Is it because the green room is really beautiful and they've got Cokes back there? No. The reason why you want to go backstage is to meet the star of the show. Not because the backstage is really great. And it's the same with us. The reason why we want to get to heaven, the reason why we want to become Christians, is not mainly, first of all, because heaven's really cool, but because Christ is the star. And when we get to heaven, we get there to be with Him. That's what makes heaven so great, is that Christ is there. The star of the show is there. So thirdly, it's a prayer for Christ-centeredness. Is Christ your treasure? Fourthly, it's a prayer of concern. Prayer of concern. Verse 4, I say this so that no one will delude you with persuasive argument. He reminds them that Christ is their treasure so that they won't be deluded by a fancy speaker into falling for error. One of the greatest gifts and one of the most dangerous weapons in the tool chest of a preacher is eloquence. Eloquence can be used wonderfully to sweep people off their feet with the truth, but it can also be used to delude people into believing error. So Paul's prayer for the Colossians would have been something like this. Lord, I plead with You to let the Colossian church listen to what I say and not simply what I sound like. It's so important. You must listen to what I say and not merely what I sound like. Because I may sound good and say error. And if you're only listening for a good speaker, then you'll be easily carried away. And I would give you the same counsel as you listen to TV preachers or radio ministries. I could give you a list of people not to listen to, but I'm not going to do that. You listen to what they say. You listen and see if the message is really Jesus Christ. If the message of Jesus Christ is primary. If the message of Jesus Christ is clear. If the message of Jesus Christ is accurate. Or is Jesus hazy in this speaker's mouth? Is He largely missing from this speaker's soapboxes? Is the picture of Jesus a scriptural picture or not? You listen to the person, and if Christ is His treasure, it will come out. 
he's not, no matter how winsome and no matter how correct he may be in our other areas, you're in danger of being carried away. The preacher must also be Christ-centered. J.I. Packer said it so well, the traveler in the biblical landscape quickly misses his way if he is unable to gain a sighting of the hill called Calvary. In other words, you may listen to sermons on the Bible all the time and still miss your way, lose your way, because the preacher doesn't put Christ at the center. So it's a prayer of concern that we would listen well. And fifthly, it's a prayer of rejoicing. A prayer of rejoicing. Let me remind you of the background that goes into this prayer. Paul has never met these people. So their successes are not the result of his preaching, but someone else's. And on top of that, their successes didn't exactly qualify them as a megachurch, did it? They were still meeting in someone's home. Their pastor was still living with his parents. And Paul, on top of all that, is writing them from prison rejoicing. A church he's never met. A church he doesn't have uh, uh, authority over. A church whose successes are not his own successes. And he is rejoicing anyway. His rejoicing is not focused on himself. Otherwise, he wouldn't have rejoiced. He would have moaned in prison. His rejoicing is a recognition of God's grace in the lives of other people. And we could all learn from that. We should rejoice and not envy when we see God's grace in the lives of other people. Paul rejoiced first in their good discipline. Verse 5, Even though I am absent in body, nevertheless I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. He rejoiced first in their good discipline, in their orderliness. It was important to him that the church and the family and the individual Christian life be structured around biblical patterns. And as he saw that come to be, he rejoiced. I rejoice as I see us working through our constitution and forming this church into a more biblical pattern. And so should you. He rejoiced secondly in their firm faith in Christ. He wanted them to be orderly and he wanted them to have a sure footing in the gospel. A firm faith in Christ. In other words, he rejoiced that they weren't, first of all, legalists whose faith was in their own works and who therefore could always pat themselves on the back and who forgot that they needed a Savior. They weren't that. And on the other hand, they weren't self-condemners whose faith was in their works and who didn't have very good works and so who were always walking around feeling guilty and condemned. No, they had faith in Christ so that they didn't rely on their works whether they were doing well and pat themselves on the back and they didn't rely on their works when they were doing poorly and beat themselves up. They had a firm faith in Christ. They had stability. They weren't flopping off of one side or the other. And furthermore, their faith in Christ meant that they had an unwavering allegiance to Christ so that they weren't imitators of the culture. They didn't have to do what everyone else was around, around them was doing, what was cool or what was cutting edge. They didn't have to imitate that. They had complete confidence and unwavering allegiance to Jesus. And so Paul rejoiced. Their hope was fixed on Jesus who paid it all and who demands our all. So Paul says, thank you God for such people 
who are organizing their church well and who are so committed, so resting in the joy of what you are. So let me summarize. First, Paul is praying. He is wrestling on behalf of God's people. He is concerned for their, their welfare. And he is rejoicing in their successes. And you and I should pray that way for one another. And you should particularly pray that I would pray that way. This is how a pastor prays. Pray that I will wrestle on, God, on your behalf with God. Pray that I will be concerned for your welfare. Pray that I will rejoice in your successes. Paul is praying, and second of all, Paul is praying that the people would simply be Christian. We looked at what Paul prayed for. You can summarize it by saying he prayed that they would simply be Christian. He didn't pray that they would be numerically successful. He didn't pray that they would be popular. He didn't pray that they would be healthy or wealthy. He didn't pray that their church would be a well-oiled religious machine but simply that they would be Christian. He prayed that they would love each other in verse 2. He prayed that they would know their Bibles also in verse 2. He prayed, verse 3, that they would keep Christ at the center. He prayed, verse 4, that they would avoid error. And he prayed, verse 5, that they would be orderly and that their faith would stay firm. That's simply being a Christian. Loving one another, knowing our Bibles, keeping Christ at the center, avoiding error, being orderly, and continuing firm in the faith. That's simply being a Christian. But that's a lot harder to do than putting on an attractive Sunday morning program or having good children's activities. Which is what many churches think is the measure of success. To be Christian... Not to be worldly successful, but to be Christian means we actually have to do some heart work. We have to be intense about God seven days out of the week. We have to really trust Jesus and not our own methods and successes. Do you trust Jesus? Are you really Christian? Let me pray that I would be and that you would be. Father, I pray with Paul that we would be knit together as a church in love and in sound doctrine. That we would love one another and that we would love your truth. I pray, Father, most of all, I think, tonight, that we would keep Christ at the center of what we do, that we would never become a church that's known for this idea or that idea or this program or that theological emphases, but God, that we would be a church that is known for talking about and believing in and lifting up Jesus. God, I pray that with that, that we would avoid error, error about Jesus and error about other things in the Scriptures that are so clearly true. Don't let us be carried away by my or anyone else's eloquence. God, help us be orderly. Help us organize our church after biblical patterns. Help us have sustained 
continued firm faith. Help us be Christian. God, for those who are here tonight who know that they are not Christian, open their hearts to turn from relying on self and obeying self and loving self to relying on and obeying and loving Your Son, Jesus, who is our only Savior. It's in His name we pray. Amen. I want to encourage you now to turn your Bibles to the book of Colossians again. Tonight we begin with chapter 2 and verse 1. Colossians 2, 1.